Hello and welcome to the Total Entertainment Podcast with me, Paul Collis. And today we're going to take a look at supporting artists Killing Joke and Toya. And they are supporting Billy Idol on tour. So let's get straight on it, shall we? Let's start off with uh, the backgrounds of both Killing Joke and Toya. So we'll start off with Killing Joke. Killing Joke are an English rock band from Notting Hill, London, England, formed in 1979 by Jazz Coleman on the vocals and keyboards, and Paul Ferguson on drums, and Georgie Walker on guitar with Youth on the bass. Their first album, Killing Joke, was released in 1980. After the release of Revelations in 1982, bassist Youth was replaced by Paul Raven. The band achieved mainstream success in 1985 with both the album Nighttime and the single Love Like Blood. The band's musical style emerged from the post-punk scene and stood out due to their heavier approach and has been cited as a key influence on industrial rock. Their style evolved over many years and at times incorporated elements of gothic rock, gothic rock, synth pop and electric and electronic music, often bearing Walker's prominent guitar and and Coleman's savage, savagely strident vocals. Killing Joke had influenced many later bands and artists such as Metallica, Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails and Soundgarden. Although Coleman and Walker have been the only constant members of the band and the current lineup now features all four original members. Killing Jake have inspired artists of different genres. They have been name-checked by several heavy metal and rock bands such as Metallica and Soundgarden. Metallica covered the covered the weight. And James Hetford picked Coleman as one of his favourite singers. Soundgarden cited them as one of their main influences whilst they started playing. Helmets covered Primitive in 1993. Faith No More stated that all of their all of their members liked the group, qualifying them as a great band. Walker's style inspired Kurt Cobain's work with Nirvana, according to Bill Janovitz of All Music. With the use of a metallic sound mixed with shimmering chorus effect, Foo Fighters and Nirvana's drummer uh, Dave Grohl covered Requiem in 1997. Metal bands Fear Factory covered Millennium in 2005. Jane's Addiction said that the group was one of their influences. Singer Perry Farrell was inspired by the percussive and tribal aspects of their music. The band had inspired many several bands including Nine Inch Nails and Ministry. They have been cited by Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails' lead singer who mentioned his interest in the earlier material and said that he had studied their music. Al Jorgensen of Ministry described himself as a big fan of the group. Marilyn Manson listened to them during his formative years. Godflesh frontman Justin Broderick was uh, particularly influenced by their early releases containing dub versions. The group has been cited by alternative music acts such as My Bloody Valentine and LSD Sound System, shoegazing guitarist and composer Kevin Shields of My My Bloody Valentine mentioned the band and specifically praised Walker's touch which he described as this effortless plane producing a monstrous sound. In 2002, James Murphy of the dance punk band LCD Sound System sampled the music of Change in his debut single Losing My Edge. So the current members and the original members are Jazz Coleman Paul Ferguson, Geordie Walker and Youth. The former members are Paul Raven, Martin Atkins, Dave Taff Ball, Jeff Dugmore and Ben Colvert. And additional musicians 
that they would take out as in session musicians are Dave Kovakovic on keyboard, Jimmy Copley on drums, John Betchdale on keyboard, Nick Hollywell Walker on keyboard, Dave Gregory on bass, Dave Grohl did the drums from 2002 to 2003. Mm, very interesting that. Ted Parsons on drums, Reza Erdhin on keyboards, and Ro- and Roy Robertson on keyboard. So here's their discography. The studio albums are Killing Joke in 1980, What's This For in 1981, Revelations in 1982, Fire Dances in 1983, Nighttime in 1985, Brighter Than a Thousand Suns in 1986, Outside the Gate in 1988, Extremities, Dirt and Various Repressed Emotions in 1990, Pandemonium in 1994, Democracy in 1996, Killing Joke in 2003, Hosanna's From the Basements of Hell in 2006, Absolute Descent in 2010, MMXII in 2012, and Pylon in 2015. Right, well now we've heard about Killing Joke, we're going to go straight into Toya's background. So, Toya Ann Wilcox, born in, on the 18th of May 1958, is an English musician, actress and TV presenter. In a career spanning more than 40 years, Wilcox has had, up, has had eight top 40 singles, released over 20 albums, written two books, appeared in over 40 stage plays and 10 feature films, and voiced and presented numerous TV shows. Between 1977 and 1983, she she fronted the band Toya before embarking on a solo career in the mid-1980s. At the 1982 uh, BPI Brit Awards, Toya was nominated for British Breakthrough Act and Best Female Solo Artist. Toya was nominated a further two times in this category in 1983 and in 1984. Her hit singles include It's a Mystery, Thunder in the Mountains and I Want to Be Free. Wilcox was born in Kings Heath in Birmingham. Her father, Berwick Wilcox, ran a successful joinery business and owned three factories. Her mother, Barbara Joy Nirolson, was a professional dancer with whom he fell in love after seeing her on stage in Western Supermare with singing and comedy double acts Flanagan and Allen and married in 19 and married in 1949 barbara had to give up her career after giving birth to nicola born 1950 and kim who was born in 1953 wilcox's elder sister and brother respectively wilcox has suggested her first name should, could be in reference to toya texas or to a native american word toya meaning water although she notes her parents denied both origins wilcox enjoyed a financially comfortable childhood attending a private girls school but was bullied requiring physiotherapy for a spinal condition she behaved violently towards her mother whom she was close an absentee pupil and and frequently rebellious she sat o levels a year late owing to corrective surgery on her feet she achieved one o level pass in music Alienated by her background and surroundings, her rebellious behaviour led to her shunning male company and adopting an aggressive and flamboyant identity. Her early interest in music, dance and acting combined with her alienation and her uncertainty regarding her sexuality led Wilcox to seek an outlet initially in acting and then in music. She attended the old rep drama school in Birmingham, paying privately because she was 
denied a grant because she was denied a grant and he assassinated she has a lisp and can't and isn't attractive she began working as a dresser in local theaters including the alexandra birmingham and birmingham hippodrome because of her distinctive appearance and and gaudily dyed hair repertory actors refer to her as the bird of paradise a friend's suggestion that she could see Sex Pistols led to her being attracted to the punk movement, but she resolved to do better, travelling to London to make up a career in acting and music. After appearing as an extra in a, in a TV drama made at the BBC Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham, an opening came to take a role in Glitter in 1976, a play in the BBC Second City First series, alongside Noel Edmonds and Phil Daniels. Recommended to the play's director by a member of the wardrobe department because of her distinctive appearance and oddball character, Wilcox was given the role for, of Sue, a girl who sang in, who, a girl who sang with the band Bill by Baggins, who uh, dreamed of appearing on Top of the Pops. In the course of the 30-minute play, Wilcox performed two songs she had co-written, "Floating Free," an acoustic ballad with with Phil Daniels accompanying her on guitar, and "Dreammaker." The play was seen by uh, Katie Nelligan and Maximilian Schell, who offered her work with the National Theatre in London, where she got the part of Emma in Tales from the Vienna Woods, directed by Schell. The opening led to her relocating to London. In 1977, while playing Emma in Tales from the Vienna Woods in the National Theatre, Wilcox inspired her role as a musician in Glitter, fronted by a band called Toya, which featured Joe... Joel Bogan on guitar, Mark Henry on bass, Steve, Steve Bray on drums, Peter Bush on keyboard and herself on vocals. Having never considered herself a musician, she found herself fronting a successful band. Although still uncertain about her own sexuality and repelled by her bandmates' antics with groupies. Introduced by actor Ian Charleston to director Derek Jarman, Wilcox was offered any part you want in Jubilee called called down the queen at the time played by victory uh, issues the, the film featured wilcox as the murderous mad as well as the number of as well as a number of other prominent figures from the punk scene she went on to play monkey in the 1979 film of the who's quadrophilia having been introduced to director frank rodman through an association with john lydon Wilcox demanded the part of Monkey from Rodham. She completed filming despite requiring medical attention for pneumonia. The possibility of a role in, sex, in the Sex Pistols film, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, under director Ross Mayer, having fallen free, Wilcox went on to play Miranda in, in Jarman's film The Tempest, which won her a nomination as Best Newcomer in the 1980s event Evening Standard Awards continuing a stage career alongside film work in 1979. On London's Royal Court Theatre stage, Wilcox played Sharon in Nigel Williams' Sugar and Spice, Tallulah in Stephen Polakoff's uh, American Days in the ICA, playing alongside Mel Smith, Anthony Shear and Phil Daniels, and taking a film role opposite Catherine Hepburn in the made-for-television film The Corner's Green, directed by George Cocker. Wilcox found her dual careers as a musician and actress frequently in conflict, leading to confusion as to which role constituted a compartment to put her into. Feeling her music career is not taken as seriously as her acting, she nevertheless viewed her acting role as highbrow, as highbrow and her music career as lowbrow. Married since 1986 to musician Robert Fripp, founder and guitarist of the progressive rock group King Crimson, 
the couple have no children and have arranged their wills so as to leave their entire fortune to the establishment of a musical educational trust for children. That's really good actually. In 1987, Wilcox was invited to make a speech at Women of the Year ceremony in the presence of Diana Princess of Wales, expressing her views on the subject of how being disabled incites creativity and craving for a fuller life experience. In 2002, she became prominent, became a prominent opponent of planned accommodation centres for asylum seekers near the Worcestershire village of Talk Morton, protesting together with more than 1,000 villagers. In November 2007, Wilcox took on the role of sponsoring a black country urban park for the People's 50 Million Big Lottery Fund. In April 2008, she took part in the Great Walk to Beijing alongside other celebrities to raise money for Olivia Newton John's cancer charity. So, we're going to go over her discography. Her tours, her feature films, and TV appearances. Well, that's a lot of them. So, discography. Sheep Farming in Barnet in 1980. The Blue Meaning in 1980. Anthem in 1981. The Changeling in 1982. Love is the Law in 1983. Minx in 1985. Desire in 1987. Prostitutes in 1988. Ophelia's Shadow in 1991. Take the Leap in 1993. Dream Child in 1994. Looking Back in 1995. The Acoustic Album in 1996. Velvet Lion Shout in 2003, In the Cult of the Crimson Queen in 2008, and Posh Pop in 2021. So, on tour. 1979, The Resurrection Tour, 1979, Sheep Farming in Barnet Tour, 1980, Bird in Flight Tour, 1980, Layer Tour, 1981, College Tour, 1981, Anthem Tour, 1981, Good Morning Universe European Tour, 1982, Changeling Tour, 1982, Mini Tour, 1983, Rebel Run Tour, 1988, Frip Frip Tour, 1989, Sunday All Over the World Tour, 1993, Take the Leap Tour, 1984, Leap to Dream Tour, 1994, Acoustic Dream Child Tour, 1994, God Has God Ceased to Dream You Tour, 2002, Here and Now Tour, 2004, Best of the 80s Tour, 2006, The Hitmakers Tour, 2010, From Sheep Farming to Anthem, Classic Revisited Tour, 2012 The Changing Resurrection Tour 2012 The Changing Resurrection 2 2013 Love is the Law and More Tour 2014 Crimson Queen Greatest Hits Live 2014 Acoustic Up Close and Personal 2014 North American Tour with with the Humans 2014 Songs from the Intergalactic Ranch House and Beyond 2015 Loud Proud and Electric Tour 2017 80s Invasion Tour 2018 Toya 60 Tour 2019 Thunder in the, in the Highland Scottish Tour 2021 to 2022 po- Posh Pop Tour 2022 Electric Ladies with Hazel O'Connor Now her filmography 1978 Jubilee is Mad 1979 The Corn is Green with Bessie Wassey 1979 The Tempest as Miranda, 1979 Quadrophilia as Monkey, 
1981, uh, A Music War as Herself. 1984, Murder, The Ultimate Grounds for Divorce as Valerie Cunningham. 1984, The Ebony Tower as Anne the Freak. 1993, Anchoress as Pauline Carpenter. 1999, GD and the Cadillacs as Barbara Gifford. 1999, The Most Fertile Man in Ireland as Dr. Johnson. 2011, The Power of Three as Michelle. 2015, ah! 2017, The Last Laugh. 2017, Lies We Tell. 2017, The Extremis. 2017, The Apple Picker. 2018, Hound. 2019, Heckle. 2019, Invasion Planet Earth. 2020, To Someone on post-production. 2020, Swipe Right as post-production. 2020, Dollhouse in production. 2020, Give Them Wings as Alice Hodgson. And 2021, Ghost of Body Rectory as Estelle Roberts. Now, TV appearances. There's a lot here. So, 1976, Second City First as Sue. 1977, Free Piece Suite as Buzz. 1978, Premiere as Fran. 1979, The Quartermass Conclusion. 1980, Shawstring. 1980, A Question of Guilt. 1980, She Was On an Episode of Minder. 1982, ITV Playhouse. 1982, Animal Magic. 1982, Dear Heart. 1982, Tales of the Unexpected. 1984, Pop Quiz. 1985, Function Room. 1985, Pob. 1987, The Grand Knockout Tournament. 1988, French and Saunders. 1988, Bodicea. 1990, Includo. 1990, The Tale of Little Pig Robinson. 1991 to 1994. 1991 through 1994 for Brum as the narrator. 1992, Harry, Jer- Harry Jeremy as a narrator again. 1992, First Night on TV. 1993, Margaret. 1993, Doctor Who, 30 Years in the TARDIS. 1994, The Ink Thief. 1995, Cavern QC. 1995, The Shooting Gary. 1996, The Good Sex Guide Late. 1997, Presenting Toya on VH1. 1997, Lights Lunch. 1997, Three Two Thousand One on Teletubbies as the narrator. She was the narrator on the original Teletubbies. No way. Ha! 1998, Boys from the Black Country. 1998 through 1995, Nevermind the Buzzcocks. 1999, It Slayed. 1999, Barmy Aunt Boomerang. 2000, Doctors. 2002, Mr. Bean the Animated Series as additional voices. 2002, Rock Legends. 2002, Open House Panto Special. Nine, uh, 2005, Queen Mania. 2006, Proud Parents. 2007 through 2008, Secret Diary of a Cool Girl. 2007, Loose Women, but she was only on there once as a panellist. 2008, In Your Dreams. 
2008 Living with the Dead, 2008 Celebrity Mastermind, 2008 Ready Steady Cook Celebrity Christmas Special, 2009 Psychic Therapy, 2009 Celeb Experiences, 2009 Hole in the Wall, 2009 Celebrity Brides, 2009 Celebrity Life Skills, 2009 The One Show, 2009 Episode of Casualty, 2010 Greatest Christmas TV Moments, 2010 Gale Tuesday, 2010 Greatest Christmas TV Ads, 2011 Celebrity Ghost Stories, 2012 The Women of Doctor Who, 2012 Doctor Who The Best of Specials, 2013 The Big Fat Quiz of the 80s, 2013 All Star Mr and Mrs, 2013 Three Sides of the Coin, 2013 The Power of Three, 2013 Dun Punkin Episode 1 Boys Will Be Boys, 2014 Splash, 2014 Pointless, 2014 Who's Doing the Dishes, 2015 Doctor, 2015 Doctors, 2016 The Chase Celebrity Special, 2018 Celebrity Mastermind, 2020 Celebrity Catchphrase, 2021 Pointless Celebrities, 2021 Celebrity Tipping Point, 2021 Britain's Biggest 80s Hits, and 2021 Britain's Biggest 70 Hits. Wow, that's a lot. And the two books that she's written is 2000, Living Out Loud, 2005, Diary of a Facelift. Wow. Now those are some serious, serious credits. And not many other people could do that much work. Not many people. Wow, that's amazing. We'll be back after this. So not only does Master X Media have a series of podcasts, but we also have a series of books. The first book is actually two books, it's volume one and volume two, of a tribute to working at sea. The best fiction is based on truth. This is a compilation of short stories, rants and poems loosely based on the author's experience at working on a cruise ship. Some of these stories are based on actual events, but highly exaggerated, whilst other stories are pure fiction. The title of the book, A Tribute To, is fitting with the tone of the book because, like a tribute act, it is a blatant, altered reality where you can enjoy it knowing it's not quite the truth. There are things of alcoholism which used to be highly prevalent within workers in the cruise industry, as well as stories with a sexual nature. So sit down, relax, and enjoy the ride of A Tribute to Working at Sea, Volumes 1 and 2. All of these books are available on Amazon and are available in paperback and on Kindle. And the links for all of these books are in the description below. And we're back. So, for uh, Toya, the back screen start. The back screen had a holding slide on there with a, with a traditional red pleated curtain as uh, we were waiting for her to come out. And as the house lights went down, the uh, red drape logo holding slide, however you want to call it, that faded away, and there was a black screen with Toya's name and logo on there. And then the music started to uh, come up 
and as, to as soon as Toya walked out, the crowd went wild and and she began to sing e Evening of Our Life and yeah it was full blown she went real full blown on this one so um, lighting wise there was no dedicated face light and when I say face light it would be white light that's on her face it was all colour washers and I suppose because she's not headlining she didn't get the follow spots it's as simple as that really personally I don't like that I, per I would personally put the follow spots on every act just so you can see the face even if it's a light little glow on there obviously because uh, they're not the, the headline it won't be uh, more prominent but just uh, just enough to give a little tickle of light just like I used to uh, do on the follow spots on the Miserable all those years ago you know you just have a very faint tickle of light so their features just stood out right but so that being said let's continue she had the uh, profile washing units on LX2, which is the upstage lighting bar. And she had a few of the uh, units on on LX1, which was the first lighting bar on stage. And the mold phases on those were occasionally used. They weren't used that much, though. And she had a few uh, wash units covering the stage from uh, the front of the house bar, so FOH1. And it looks good actually, although it was pretty limited because the uh, limited uh, amount of lights that she was uh, she had access to by being the first support. And it's just how it goes. I say this time and time again. At the end of the day, the kit belongs to Billy Idol, and you get what you're given when you're a support artist. That's just how it goes, unless you bring your own kit on top of Billy Idol's kit as well. But hey. You can't always be winners, and if you don't want to spend the money, then you don't want to spend the money, and that's your prerogative. At the end of the day, artists like Toya, they're great. They don't need gimmicks of expensive lights and gadgets and whatnot, because their work speaks for itself. To finish off the lighting uh, section, it was all the lights were always in the same position, but every song had a different, uh, well, it had a different colour. You know, different colour combinations, different gobo com combinations, a little bit of rotation on the gobos from time to time, and a bit of flashing in time with the music. And that's pretty much your lot on that one. Uh, it's just... It just is what it is at the end of the day. When you've got a limited amount of lighting rig, you've got to use what you've got to use, and, and that's essentially it. Right, so sound-wise, the first song lacked clarity. I mean, it seriously lacked clarity. But by the time the second song had started, the clarity had a massive improvement. So, and there's a reason for this, and that's because there weren't that many people in the audience at the time of the show going up. Now, why wasn't there? Well, the doors opened up at half six, and Toya was on at seven o'clock, so she didn't have that many people in there to start with. So the sound would have all been out of whack because it was programmed for a full arena. And that's what you do, you aim to calibrate it for a full arena. But because there was no full arena and there's a lot of echo and whatnot because there are people, not enough people there to absorb the sound, it lacked the clarity. So once the sound engineer had wrestled with this fact and wrestled and did a bit of tweaking, the clarity was there. It was a superb quality, superb clarity, 
and I wouldn't say it was 22 karat gold. It was definitely 18 karat gold standard. That's how I would define it. So it wasn't the most clear, but from uh, the second song onwards, it was a massively sharp marked improvement. And that's what you like to see. That's what I like to see. Yes, fair enough. The first song didn't go down to, as planned, but it still got worked on. And, and fair play to the sound operator. He, w he was really good after wrestling that first song. And sometimes it happens. It's unavoidable because you can't help the acoustics if uh, there isn't enough people to absorb sound and create all the echo and you and the loss of clarity. Now, as an artist, Toya was great. She was great. With that first song, yet again, uh, she was struggling a little bit until it was all put under control. But she didn't lose her nerve. No, she did not lose her nerve one bit. It didn't throw her whatsoever. She understood that the sound engineer was having a bit of a bad moment, but she could hear it getting improved at, throughout that first song. And come the second song, Toya sounded superb. She had the power where she needed the power. She had the high notes where she needed the high notes. She had the low notes where she needed the low notes. She had absolute control over her vocal abilities, which is superb to hear, especially from someone of her age. Now, I don't want to sound ageist here, but sometimes when you get older performers, they don't have the vocal range. They, it's, a, it's a fact. Pavarotti lost a, a bit of vocal ability in his latter years, and he, he admitted he would be the first to admit it. So like, I can't hit those notes no more. It's just not physically possible because of his age. And... And a few other factors as well, like lifestyle and whatnot, because Pavarotti was, uh, wasn't exactly a slender person. But I digress a bit. And same with Blondie. But with Blondie, she, uh, she understood that she lost certain bits of vocal ability, but she adapted the songs around it, and it was still a strong performance. Whereas where you compare those two artists with Toya, yeah, I'm guessing she would have had to have uh, adjusted her vocal ability slightly, but to me, she hadn't lost any vocal ability from the CD uh, copies of the songs that I've heard over the years, because I am an 80s child myself, so I would have heard a load of her stuff, which I have. As we went through her uh, work from early on in the podcast, I didn't even realise that she was a voice on uh, Teletubbies, but hey doesn't matter she had a great stunning performance and the audience enjoyed this performance they were clapping they were applauding some cases they're bouncing for the old for being an older an old, for being an older audience they're bouncing around pretty good actually it was a great show to watch and Toya did really really well the audience loved her and that's what you need you need a a very enthusiastic older musician and singer like Toya and she there she, she she and she commanded that audience really well she enjoyed herself and she had a real not only a strong not only did she have a strong vocal performance but she had a really strong stage presence as well and it was all the little things as well to which in, which added to the show because she is at the end of the day an amazing showman and no one could take that away from her 
and I was actually privileged to see such a strong performance. Although it was a little bit short because of the two support acts and the timings of the show. So we had a nice treat, a very brief but nice treat. And this treat was 30 minutes long and well done to Toya because she was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Right, so let's move swiftly on to to the killing joke. Well, it's an interesting one, I have to say, a very interesting one. I don't recall many Killing Jake songs, and to be honest, well, let's get on it. Let's get on it. So the house lights went down, and yet again they had the uh, curtain holding slide, which uh, went black at the start of the show, and their logo came on the screen. And then... Lighting wise, there was a bit of a mistake right at the top of the show. It just seemed like the lighting operator, who was actually a different lighting operator to uh, Toya, I have to say, they had a different lighting operator for every uh, artist uh, artist in the show tonight. So, um, how can I put this in a nice way? The lighting operator kind of like got lost from uh, what was going on. And the reason for this is the preset before the killing joke came out you had reds on the drums you had the congo blue which is essentially a fake uv purple so it's got the same color of uv but uh, it's not going to give you skin cancer i digress and the lighting operator as they come out went from that state to strobing whites where nothing was happening and then back again and strobing whites and back again i think the lighting operator kind of hit the wrong scene on the lighting desk and uh, it took a few seconds for the operator to work out what's gone on and it got corrected that being said though the rest of the uh, show's lights were actually pretty good and it's just a uh, schoolboy error in my opinion but an error nonetheless so the rest of the show all the lights focus on the downstage center portion of the stage and the band didn't really move around at all they had no face light again they just had the wash units from from front of house one just like Tyre did no they had lx1 and 2 which are the bars above the stage and they also had the units that were on top of the dollies at the back of the stage just behind the bridge although they were not up on the bridge and that is pretty much it that they had for the lighting so yet again every song had a different color well a different color combination and they had a bit more movement than Toya did so not only did they have the uh, static looks you had the different gobos and they rotate the gobos a lot more strub the gobos a lot more strub the units a lot more flashed them around and then they actually scanned them into the audience as well they also had all the units on uh, front of house one which Toya didn't have she only had she only had the wash units at the front there's also a load of profile units which uh, they had pointing into the audience constantly just lighting up the audience in the in the same style as what was going on, on the stage so they, they essentially made the uh, audience part of the show sound wise there was no clarity whatsoever but then again that's the style of the band that's how I worked it out to be. Uh, it also doesn't help that 
it is hard to give metal clarity. You have to be a very seriously skilled uh, engineer to get metal and hard rock, post-punk, etc. to be as clear as possible. It, you're not going to get it. It's not the style of uh, genre. It's not there for clarity. It's there to make their point. And this point is set to music. Couldn't understand exactly what most of the point was because it was a bit muffled and I actually did struggle to hear the vocals uh, some of the times which is just the style of the uh, band that they are. As The Killing Joke actually started performing I was expecting circle pits to open up, you know, a bit of moshing and then I instantly realised that's not going to happen because most of the audience are in their 50s. Yeah. And and I say 50s, 50s, 60s and 70s, we had a lot of people in here. So there would be no mosh pits, which is a bit of a shame because it would have been interesting to see some uh, moshing going on in there. No circle pits. No, There wasn't even bounce, people bouncing up and down that often. They did get a re okay reception though from the audience. I would have expected a bit more, but with the audience being static and just watching the stage cheering here and there but yeah they just didn't have the kind of reception that i'd expect them to have maybe it's the age of the audience but after toya's uh, performance where they were up and lifted they just the energy just fell a little bit flat which is a shame really it was a shame because something you know, the killing jake are and marmite kind of band and whereas i'm not really a fan of them you know i don't like this kind of marmite and other people did and there was a big mix of people that loved the marmite and didn't really care for the marmite in tonight's show which was a pity because you'd like to think that people would have turned up specifically for some of the uh, support acts but that's just how it goes from time to time you can't always be a winner we'll be back after this if you like today's podcast please hit like subscribe and share and if you haven't already done so why not check out more content from master x media by clicking the link in the description below and we should catch you next time bye for now